I got wind of a young genius that was going to Scripps College. And so I went out to Scripps College and uh, talked to the kid. He was like 12 to 13 years old and he was getting his PhD in organic chemistry. I told him I tried the patent and it didn't work and he said, oh yeah, they left out a, a crucial ingredient. By the way, Douglas is talking about a crucial ingredient for making LSD. And he told me what it was and how to put it into the process. And so I went home and tried it again. And eventually, in one of these sessions, I took it and uh, went to bed and woke up having the technicolor dreams. So that's when we knew that it worked. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner. And this is episode one of our series on psychedelics. In this series, we look at the way revolutionary thinkers defy societal norms in order to advance medicine, redefine culture, and occasionally recalibrate our minds. This movement began brewing in the 60s and has slowly been edging its way into the mainstream since, whether it's through Silicon Valley elites microdosing or government-approved psychedelic therapies. This series highlights the people who have helped lead the way. Today's story takes us along Douglas George, who, yeah, you heard it right, was one of the first private individuals to synthesize his own LSD on a back porch during the 1960s. This hobby chemistry would eventually open doors to musical legends like Bob Dylan and the Grateful Dead. And during the heat of the 60s psychedelic scene, Douglas was at the forefront of LSD distribution, with scores of curious people seeking out his new mind-modifying drug. But he wasn't really a dealer or a hippie or a stoner. He was a scientist, one who wound up in the right place at the right time. His back porch creations would send the first psychedelic ripples throughout a culture changing the face of mid-century America and carving out a unique space in the world of art, science, and psychology. But before we get pulled into John Lennon's land of tangerine trees and marmalade skies, let's pull things back to the beginning, going way, way back to 1929. My parents, geez, they had just gotten married. They were in their late teens, from a very wealthy family, and then suddenly found themselves homeless. The tremendous crowds which you see gathered outside the stock exchange are due to the greatest crash in the history of the New York Stock Exchange in market prices. My grandfather was rich, but lost it all in the 1929 crash. I was born in Iowa into a very poor family. We lived on the wrong side of the railroad track. What did your parents encourage you in terms of like your interest and what were you interested in as a kid? model airplanes when I was a kid. That was my hobby. I designed a flying wing. Really quite a beautiful airplane that I built and took it out to fly. And it flew so slowly that one could walk backwards uh, and just pick it out of the air with your hand. Wait, so how did you even learn how to create something like that? I have no idea. I just drew them until they looked good and I thought they would fly and then I spent weeks and weeks building them <laughs> and took them out to try to fly them. I have a lot of floating memories of those days in Iowa. There right down the street from us, oh, a block away was Ed Coventry's 
petroleum distribution plant and he would come in periodically with his big truck and fill it up with gasoline and then take it out to the gas stations. And for some reason, me and my two brothers, we would climb up on his truck and uh, look down the hole in the top, which uh, the uncovered hole where he was filling the truck with gasoline and breathe the fumes and get dizzy. And he just let us do that for some time. And then eventually he asked us, he said that probably wasn't a good idea. And so we quit. Were you interested in chasing that that feeling of like putting consciousness slightly off balance? That was just a passing thing and really no more interest there right up until I graduated from college. So Douglas put the high on hold, at least for now. In the meantime, childhood was calling and his knack for creation would take form in model wings and rudders. This was the late 40s to early 50s. So Douglas was crafting his little flying machines in the years following World War II, when flight warfare was at its height. These new machines flew across the sky in a way that had never been seen before. It was his hobby, and maybe a good distraction from sniffing gas fumes. But for now, it wouldn't be much more than that. Yet I think it embodies the same curiosity that pulled him all the way across the country to pursue his college degree in California. What were you thinking about in terms of college and what to study? And and was that like how was that even on the docket of things that you could do coming from a poor family? Well, that's a good question because in those days I went to UC Riverside and it cost $45 per semester. But uh, had it not been essentially free, I would not have gone to college. So with a $45 tuition, Douglas would leave his family's tar paper shack on the wrong side of the railway and catch a ride west towards upward mobility. But a college degree wasn't the only thing the West Coast had in store for him. What was your first introduction to LSD? Like, when did you first hear uh, those three letters? There was a magazine article. It had an article in it about what they called the insanity drug. I remember reading that. I thought, wow, that's really interesting. There's a drug that makes you insane. Later on, Timothy Leary and Dick Alpert got in the news for their exploits. Their names came up in the news a lot at the time associated with LSD. And they were giving it to students and the school no longer wanted them to experiment with LSD. So, but that's what gave me the idea that I I wanted to try it. I was curious. But with these experiments with people, like what's actually happening in these studies? Well, people were describing their experiences as being extremely powerful and enlightening. It was the drug culture that was started. Douglas, alongside the rest of his generation, was about to be engulfed by 1960s counterculture. And whether he liked it or not, drugs were a part of that. The 60s brought anti-war sentiment, sit-ins, Woodstock, and a new fervor for psychedelics. 
At the front lines of this was Timothy Leary, a psychologist at Harvard who joined ranks with fellow psychologist Richard Alpert to begin the Harvard Psilocybin Project. The project ultimately fell apart due to safety issues and questionable methodology, and both Leary and Alpert were expelled from academia. But their ideas sent vibrations across the U.S. and ultimately made their way to Douglas. You're hearing about these studies. When's the first time you actually see or confronted with what the molecule actually is and what it actually looks like? So when I first moved to L.A. to take this job, my friend Bruce Neidorf told me about a guy named Paul Bindrum who was giving a lecture in L.A. Paul Bindrum was a psychologist. He later got sort of semi-famous. He was doing some weird-ass experiments with naked people. He gave this lecture on LSD. And during the lecture, Paul Bindrum held up a cardboard thing with a patent number on it. And he said, it's easy to make. You can make it in your kitchen in three hours. And they held up this uh, patent number and I jotted it down and went to the LA County Library and looked up the patent and uh, took it from there. And so you look up this patent. When you're looking it up, what's like your intention? I just was curious about it and wanted to try it. Wrote down the patent number, which is really just a recipe. Built up a little uh, laboratory on my back porch. And How do you build up a laboratory? How are you finding these ingredients? Like, I imagine you're portraying it as a super simple process, but like, it, it must be hard to build up a laboratory and find all these chemicals, right? I must have just ordered them or went a supply house. I mean, it's really stretching it to call it a laboratory. I mean, it was more akin to a bathtub gin operation. You know, it was just a really simple thing. And I mean, in terms of laboratories, there was nothing real special about it. Mostly it was just beakers and flasks. But in fact, it took many, many hours. I would come home from uh, work and start doing the process, and it would go on until 2 or 3 in the morning. I always waited for weekends for this, and it would go on until the wee hours of the morning before we had something to try, but it didn't work. Were you still trying? Like, were you, like, at the end of the process, or like, all right, whatever this is, I'm going to put it in my body? <laughs> yes. I mean, it was a foolish thing to do. Uh, no doubt that, you know, children don't have all their brain cells yet. But the first three tries failed all three times. And when it failed, I went back to doing more research and talking to people about it. And I got wind of a young genius that was going to Scripps College. He was a child prodigy. I was told that this kid knew how to do it. And so I went out to Scripps College and uh, talked to the kid. He was like 12 to 13 years old, and he was uh, getting his PhD in organic chemistry. I told him I tried the patent, and it didn't work. And he said, oh, yeah, they left out a, a crucial ingredient. And he told me what it was and how to put it into the, into the process. So you went home and tried it. 
And what happened? It was one of those things where we took it late at night because the process took about seven hours or so to go through it. And uh, we would always have one person take the proper dosage, assuming that we had 100% yield. And then we would wait around for a couple of hours. And if nothing happened, we'd give the next person a 10 times that amount. And that went on. If nothing happened there, we would uh, increase it 10 times again. But eventually, in one of these sessions, I took it and uh, went to bed and woke up having the technicolored dreams. So that's when we knew that it worked. After hours and hours of trial and error, it worked. Douglas had finally unlocked the doors that promised enlightenment and discovery. This was an entirely foreign frontier. Douglas hadn't known a soul in California who had experienced LSD, let alone concocted and consumed a batch of their own. I would have thought that this moment would be a fusion of excitement and terror, yet Douglas shares this memory in such a clinical, nonchalant tone. I guess that's what it's like to be a tried-and-true scientist. While most of us fear the unknown, Douglas wanted to get a closer look at it. His curiosity suppressed any reticence he may have had to exploring the counterculture. He'd even attend a lecture by Paul Bindrim, an extremely controversial figure at the time. Paul was practically exiled from the American Psychological Association. But again, Douglas never shied away from the taboo or outlandish. If he thought that it would broaden his perspective and uncover new truths. He wasn't the Alice stumbling into Wonderland. He was the Alice walking around with a magnifying glass, ready to dive headfirst into the rabbit hole. He was finally discovering it was worth the search. So you had done what you had set out to do, and now you have how, how many hits of acid that works? Yeah, we've eventually sorted it out, and uh, we had hundreds, hundreds of hits. And this is just from a beaker full. And so, what was the what was the next thought? Is it like, oh, now we now we can experiment all together? Well, <laughs> my girlfriend at the time, Ruthie Buxton, she had a lot of friends in Berkeley, and when the acid started working, she made a trip to Berkeley and spread the word. And half of Berkeley descended on the house and everybody wanted to take LSD and we gave it to anybody who walked through the door. What was that? Like when you say half of Berkeley came down, how many people are you seeing every day and how quickly did this all unfold? There was a steady stream of people that came down from Berkeley because they had heard about the acid factory. And so we just gave it to everybody. Did you start to get like a reputation? Because I mean, if, if, if half of Berkeley's coming down and to this house, like you must have become well-known, especially if, if the production of acid was essentially dry in California. Yes, I did get something of a reputation. But I didn't, I wanted to keep it quiet because... I didn't understand the legal ramifications of it, and I wasn't out for fame.
It's funny though, the druggy stereotype we all think of is so far from the image of scholars and scientists Douglas describes. But according to psychologists, the brainiac is actually the more accurate stereotype for the druggie. One study demonstrated that students with an above average IQ were five times more likely to experiment with hard drugs by the time they were 30. Researchers reasoned that this was because individuals with higher intelligence tend to be more open to new experiences. Douglas was now handing out this life-altering experience like it was chocolate to kids at a candy shop. And this might sound a little bizarre considering the consumer protection and illicit drug laws we know today, but it wasn't until the 1970s that all these regulations were put into place. Thus, Douglas was free to grow his business. His reputation would skyrocket. Once everybody in Berkeley knew that I was making acid, basically what I would do is take a whole bunch of hits and travel up and down the coast of California giving it to people. But soon enough, I traveled to Berkeley and met Owsley. During the 1960s, Owsley Stanley was one of the biggest figures in the San Francisco hippie movement and played a pivotal role in the counterculture. Under the professional name Bear, he was the sound man for the Grateful Dead and, according to the Rolling Stone, was the first known private individual to manufacture mass quantities of LSD amounting to more than 5 million doses. However, we know this isn't true because it was actually Douglas George who gave Owsley his first acid. So the guy I'm talking to right now, that guy was the first private individual to mass produce LSD in America. And at that time, he was making methadry. He had a meth lab. So anyway, I met him and gave him some acid. Was that the first time he had had acid? Yes, it was. And then uh, talked to Owsley. He had a big lab in Los Angeles at the time. And he said that he would convert it for me and give me half of the result. And he uh, drove out on his motorcycle from Los Angeles and he had this um, big jar. It was one of those brown laboratory jars that was 10 inches in diameter and a foot high. And it was full of powder. And so that jar had thousands thousands of hits of acid. And what did you think of like him taking the seeds that you planted and just like growing and, and running with that idea? He was something of a megalomaniac. I mean, he was very smart. He thought he was probably the smartest person on earth. So he, he had a lot of moxie. Because of that, when he did something, he did it on a grand scale. That seems at war with like the fundamental philosophy of acid, which seems like a, a departure from the ego. Well, yeah, it does seem strange, but Owsley was a strange person. So Owsley took Douglas's work and ran with it. He started producing at a larger scale. And like Douglas said, it was gaining popularity. Why? What is it about LSD that's different? I think it's because the drug leads to a perception that seems to naturally desire evangelization. But let me back this up with science. So scientists saw that LSD alters how your brain communicates. Lobes of the brain that normally don't communicate much will talk like crazy on acid. This ends up changing your perception of yourself and your place in the world. And this new mindset lingers far longer than the high and even has its own name, the philosophy of acid. This philosophy, which runs on the guiding principle of ego dissolution, which basically means that you don't have any separation with the I, with the everything, is often an experience so life-changing 
that people feel a need to tell everyone about their epiphany. It's basically built-in marketing. Owsley and Douglas were at the forefront of this movement, and they introduced the philosophy of acid to the prominent names of the late 60s. My girlfriend, Ruthie Buxton, she knew Bob Dylan. In fact, she was Bob Dylan's girlfriend. So Bob Dylan and I had a girlfriend in common. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, well, not at the same time. <laughs> she took me up to the Troubadour in Los Angeles, and where Bob Dylan was just starting to get popular, and uh, introduced me to him. So I met him. He was very rude. Why was he rude? Just his manner, and he was condescending and not not friendly. And you also had some interactions with the Grateful Dead, right? Yes. Yeah, when I was living in Santa Barbara, the Grateful Dead had a concert in Santa Barbara. And Asley called me up and uh, invited me to come down. And so I went down to the concert and got a backstage pass. And after the concert was over, I gave the Grateful Dead guys a lift to the airport. From like all of these experiences, does one stand out as like most impactful or the one that you look on most fondly? Well, there are a number of people that stand out. I met Alan Watts. Alan Watts is known for popularizing Buddhism, Taoism, and Hinduism in America. He wrote more than 25 books and articles on the subject and introduced the emerging hippie culture to his best-selling book, The Way of Zen, one of the first books on the topic. Yeah, I smoked hashish with Alan Watts one afternoon and explained holograms to him. He was great. You know, he was really famous at the time. His manner, he was so nice and so cheerful. And basically, he was an old druggie. He just loved to get high. Because of this drug, Douglas met the icons of the time. It seems like LSD was a ticket to the upper echelons of culture. I mean, to hang out with people like Alan Watts, the Grateful Dead, and Bob Dylan, most people would have jumped at the chance to be associated with celebrity, but Douglas couldn't have cared less. I mean, he basically called Bob Dylan a dick. What was new and exciting for everyone else was just another day for Douglas. In much the same way these celebrities were starting to blur together for him, the psychedelic enlightenment waned. What at one point seemed like this monumentous out-of-body experience became routine. Anytime you take LSD, it's a big deal, which is why I really stopped taking it after a while. It was too... It was too exhausting. You know, you stay high for 10, 12 hours and then come down for another six hours or so. Kind of exhausting after a while. And it didn't change. I'm not putting down the experience, but I I took it probably a thousand times. And after a while, it just got to be the same experience over and over again. It seemed to me that what was going on was that LSD was showing us the nuts and bolts of our brains. We got to see our own brain in a way that was not available to us before. So I basically stopped taking it after a number of years just because I wasn't getting any anything new out of it. Are you familiar with the uh, LSD and dendrite connection? Uh, No, what is that? Well, it turns out that LSD builds dendrites on your brain cells. 
Dendrites are the connections between brain cells, and it's basically that's how your brain functions. And the more connections you have between brain cells, the more thoughts you have. But it turns out that LSD builds dendrites. Not just LSD, but all psychedelics build dendrites in your brain. And this could very well just be a crazy theory of mine, but I believe that my brain is still sort of functioning pretty good. And I'm 82, and I tend to think that it was the LSD that built all of those extra dendrites in my brain, so I still have a functioning brain. I actually, that's something that I've thought about too. It seems like the people that I've talked to that have had significant LSD experience retain a more malleable and like youthful brain and the ability to like take up new tasks or or just to stay sharp. So I'd have a tendency to agree. I thought, well, I'll probably pay a price for this, taking these drugs and it'll burn up my brain cells (laughs) sooner or later. But that didn't happen which is, I I think, one of the more interesting outcomes of the whole psychedelic era, that people who took it didn't destroy their brains. They actually helped their brains. For Douglas, LSD has helped him stay youthful. While the trips did start to feel the same, he believes that there are long-term benefits for LSD use. In fact, according to a study in the Journal of Cognitive Enhancement, psychedelic use increases neuroplasticity in adults, which essentially makes the brain more childlike. This neuroplasticity can ward off many age-related cognitive issues. But more than just brain function, I think psychedelics have changed Douglas's perception on himself. Douglas never wanted fame or glory, and he still doesn't. The government of 60s America used fear tactics to stunt all the good work that was being done in the field. Beginning in the late 60s during the counterculture era, psychedelics were criminalized throughout the war on drugs and classified with cocaine and heroin. The government tried to push a false narrative that the psychedelic community was burnouts and junkies. But because of people like Douglas, we're finally seeing change. California's recent push to erase the damage of the war on drugs has taken monumental steps towards decriminalizing psychedelics. Now, these drugs are showing up in medical practices as aid in hospice care and even in mental health treatments. Douglas was at the beginning of this movement. He's seen it since its inception, and now he's seeing its resurgence. So as psychedelic legalization moves forward across the country, remember, it's so much more than a trip. Thanks so much for listening. And if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe and rate us five stars. If you liked the episode or had a question or just wanted to chat, DM me on Instagram at Finding Founders Podcast. Finding Founders is created, produced, and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our editing team lead is Adrian Tapia with support from Sophia Donner, Matt Fernandez, and Maura Lynch. Our script writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Elise Caldwell, Kylie McCreary, and Beatrice Phillips. Our outreach team leads are Jessica Lynn and Ankita Nambiar with support from Lisa Lay, Marie Vaughn, Melody Sabani, and Sarah Hobson. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanan with support from Eli Lawrence, Melanie Mock, and Tiff Dang. See you next week.